0: I'm Taisha Thompson.
1: I'm Eric Lyon. And I'm Wallace Lages.
0: And this is The Inside Story, a podcast about building an institute for empathic and immersive narrative, supported by an American Council of Learned Societies Digital Justice Seed Grant. In this episode, Wallace, Eric, and I we will be thinking through the role of empathy, access, and narrative in immersive technologies in conversation with our advisory board member, Dr. Brian Carter, an associate professor of Africana Studies and the director of the Center for Digital Humanities at the University of Arizona. Thank you, Brian. Welcome to the Inside Story. It's nice to have you here today. What's new? What are you working on?
2: Oh gosh! Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh cool. wow! What's new? That's a big question. I can I guess I can start with uh, the biggest thing that we're working on, and that's the uh, the the the, re, the the very recent NTIA grant, uh, the National Telecommunications Grant, uh, that we received uh, to increase and enhance broadband uh, to underserved communities around uh, the University of Arizona and its micro campuses. Uh, and so it's a three million dollar grant, and we're uh, we're working with uh, not only enhanced the broadband but also enhancing uh, the, digital, the, the digital classrooms at those micro campuses so those students that were taking online classes will now have access to STEM classes, which they didn't have access to before. So uh, we're outfitting the STEM classrooms here and there. Uh, and then we're showing the uh, the STEM instructors here how to make use of more modern technologies like volumetric and holographic video, immersive experiences, and digital uh, objects that they can use in tandem with their uh, their, their teaching and learning. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. And, and then uh, I guess another, uh, I guess, part of that grant is we're working with one of the community centers here called the Dunbar Pavilion. The Dunbar Pavilion is the historically African American school here in Tucson, Arizona. And when uh, desegregation happened, it then became a public school and then uh, low enrollment uh, caused uh, that school to go on, on sale. And it was purchased by a group that turned it into a community center. And so now at that community center, all kind of programming that happens there and so we were able to include them in this grant to begin creating financial literacy workforce development creative development and um, uh, other other forms of uh, stem programming for youth that will be then made uh, available to the community there and then once we uh, create that we'll then be able to replicate that amongst all the other partners uh, that we're that we're working with so that's a huge two-year grant Interestingly enough, it's taken almost two months to get the paperwork off the ground. Uh, And so hopefully we'll be able to get started with that in the next couple of weeks now that we got all the revisions in and things like that uh, to get going with that. So it's going to pay for like grad students and uh, equipment and all this kind of fun stuff. So that's that's the biggest thing that we're working on. Um, Other things, I guess we're just continuing with, uh, you know, uh, enhancing the center. Uh, We've got 30 students that now work here uh, and they have a number of majors from uh, computer science to film, television and media to graphic arts, uh, computer security, etc. We just got a big grant with the military, believe it or not. Uh, we're working with the military uh, in order to do something really cool though. Um, uh, th- there's a, a army base that's not very far from here and uh, it's called Fort Wachuca. Now at Fort Huachuca, that is where the uh, uh, military intelligence is located. They have a drone pilot school there. They also have something called a non-kinetic range. And what a non-kinetic range is, that is where uh, it's a huge tract of land. And instead of firing, you know, bombs, and stuff like that, a lot of ammunition, they fire um, electronic signals and they fire those at different pieces of equipment to see how permeable those pieces of equipment are. Well, um, that is part of the project. The other part of the project is uh, on Fort Huachuca's base, It is. Uh, it contains one of two surviving black officers um, 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 uh, facilities, uh, like an NCO club. And so uh, as a result of that, they've been trying to get monies in order to revitalize that and make it into a cultural center. They've never been able to do that before until they decided to use operations funds in order to revitalize the center or remodel the center, but the operations aspect of that paid for all of that. So the revital of, uh, re- the remodeling of the center is actually then gonna make uh, or have access to the digital range that we're scanning. So our part of the project is twofold first, we're going to be uh, using uh, drones to scan a 14 kilometer tract of land uh, using, and and they just bought us a $30,000 drone. It's fantastic. It's it's got a four foot wingspan. It's beautiful. Uh, And so we're using this drone that flies at 400 feet. It takes 48 megapixel photographs. It flies for an hour before it has to come back and get a battery change, and it'll go up and continue its flight. So we're, we're mapping all of this, this tract of land. And then from the operation center. People will be able to put on VR headsets and and manipulate that tract of land in an AR or VR environment. So they can rotate it around. They can zoom in, zoom out. They'll be able to see animations happening. They can see uh, animations of their of their um, uh, radio frequencies. You know, flying across the air at different you know uh, heights based on the the frequency and things like that, and the colors. So it's going to be really cool, almost like a Minority Report. So that's the fun project. So we've been going to Fort. Huachuca for the last, you know, several weekends flying this drone. Well, it flies itself. Basically, it's a VTOL drone, so it takes off vertically and then it goes into it and it flies right, and then it comes back and the thing lands. It's so cool. Every time I look at it, I'm like in awe the way it just <laughs> lands and it, it adjusts itself to the wind and everything. It's, it's, it's just so awesome. So we've been doing that for a while. So, yeah, those are a few of the projects we're working on. I could talk all day long about some of the others, if you like.
0: I love this <laughs> and I love how different each of these collaborations you have shared are from one another. I wanna go back to the telecommunications project. And I was wondering about your work with the community, if the communities have reached out to you or was this something that was created in like tandem with the communities? How did that project come about? And I'm thinking of this particularly as we think through our connections with communities and building this Institute for Empathic Immersive Narrative, How will we go about like creating um, big outcomes for those we are working with?
2: Right. That's a really, really good question. That, that, that involves this idea of responsible community engagement. That's part of what we teach here at the center to our students and have access to all these resources, but we're working with communities that have access to little or no resources, right? So you gotta, you gotta teach students how to, how to deal with that, that, that difference. Um, but when, when you're, when you're dealing with these kinds of relationships, we didn't just start with the NTIA grant. We've had a long and ongoing relationship with a number of community organizations here in Tucson. Part of the mission of the Center for Digital Humanities is to work with underserved communities in order to help elevate the voices that they already have using advanced technologies and tools. And so when we think about what we do, um, part of the funding that I always um, uh, let those that are working with us know is that part of their funds go into a pool that will then supplement um, or um, uh, you know help with the costs that, that communities don't have in order to pay us to do various projects so we've been able to uh, you know subcomp uh, uh, various things dealing with digital scanning or websites we're working with a community museum that just opened on our campus that will um, uh, that, that will make use of digitized items that that our students are going out to the community organizations or um, uh, groups on uh, in, in, in Tucson that have these archives these physical archives the museum on campus has nothing but they want to highlight that which is in the community digitally as these museum at the museum so we're making available those digital objects that we're going out to the community scanning via QR code on top of a podium in this museum that's on campus that will hopefully drive traffic from campus out into the community in order to experience Tucson very differently the african-american aspect of Tucson very differently so when I think about you know how we fund uh, or how projects are funded here um, and how I cost things out it's always keeping in mind the relationships that we have with the community. So by starting those in a way that is beneficial to them, that doesn't ask for anything, but always benefits the community first, then when these larger grant opportunities come into, you know, come and make themselves available, that's when the community is like, okay, we, you're not just coming in, you know, because of this large opportunity to take advantage of our resources because you wanna get some money and you might give us a few pennies. You've got this ongoing relationship with us. We know you're in it for the long haul. And that's when the real partnership and understanding comes into play. So that's how we got it going on here.
0: Okay. I love this. I'm curious about something. It Mm -hmm. was a situation that you described really quickly that sounded equitable. You said something, if somebody gets a grant, and I'm probably going to say this all wrong, Mm -hmm. but someone gets a grant and you take a piece of that to fund the work that you said a subcomp for the community. How does something like that work? Because I know, because in my mind, because I don't know, in my mind, I know that some grants say that you can only spend the money on what you proposed. So how are you able to write a grant that says we're going to take some of this and do something else with it?
2: Research, because students always have to have some sort of research backing. Uh, A percentage of their time goes into researching whatever the technology is that they're most interested in. And so that research fund, that pool, is basically what I then pull from in order to supplement the community. So it's all still going towards the grant that they paid for, the research orientation. So some projects will fund, say, a digital scanning project a portion of that student's time has to research how to do the best type of digital scanning, what scanner to use, what resolution, you know, what lighting is necessary. That time allocation is then what is put into a pool that is then drawn from in order to help underserved communities and groups.
0: Got it, so the scanning, to the research of how to do the best scanning, what's the best device to do this scanning is done Mm -hmm. on with in partnership with the community so that they can get a best practice. And then in turn, they're doing the, the official work with whatever the proposal said. Exactly. Got it. That is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I never would have thought of that. So thank you for that nugget. I'm going to take that. (laughs) Um, And I just wanted to clarify for the audience that the center that, um, Dr. Brian Carter here is referring to is the Center for Digital Humanities at the University of Arizona.
1: Yeah. So I was I was super interested about this story about the Fort Huachuca. Is is I'm mm-hmm. I'm saying correctly? <laughs> yes. And mm-hmm. so as 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 I understand you're describing, like it was one of the places where uh, African American troops were like stationed, right? And they. They probably mm-hmm. uh, went over like this, very troublesome. From 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 what I what I see, like coming from another country, and, and looking at what happened at the, at the war, right during a segregated period of the um, American history, and in in this in this podcast we have been talking a lot about the. The difficulty about telling the story of the others, right, and and getting that cor- correct, and giving them chance to to express how uh, how they really feel, right, and and the and the trueness uh, that, that they live, and it seems that you have access to some very interesting material uh, that is stored there mm-hmm. in, at this place, and maybe also have the chance to talk just to, to some people who are like directly connected somehow to to the time Mm -hmm. uh can you talk a little bit more about that and how do you how do you plan to transform you know their their thoughts into an actual experience that people can go and 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 understand a little bit more about what happened
2: That's a great question. So we've been working with a number of groups that have access to archives and resources dealing with the Buffalo Soldier history here in Southwest Arizona. Buffalo Soldiers are in Texas as well as in Colorado as well. But, uh, uh, you know, Arizona claims the Buffalo Soldiers more so than any because we were part of the great Negro migration that brought a lot of African-Americans from the South out West. They were called Exodusters, and many of them ultimately found that one of the paths to economic independence, if you want to call it that, was through the military. And so some black people joined the military and they helped with a lot of things. So in addition to wars, uh, Buffalo Soldiers helped create the National Park System. One of the Buffalo Soldiers, Colonel Young, actually helped establish the border between Mexico and the United States. So there's a rich history about the Buffalo soldier and Buffalo Soldiers and their existence here in, in Southwest Arizona. So there are a lot of community archives. There are a lot of also um, reenactors that reenact or that tell the story of Buffalo soldiers to school groups and to community organizations um, etc and to historic locations so we've been able to capture a lot of that in a variety of ways there's a location here in Tucson called the Presidio and it's an old Spanish fort which um, uh, which basically uh, every month people dress up in period clothing and they they play, and so visitors or tourists can come in it's like a living museum you've seen them before right and so they have those same things with Buffalo Soldier experiences in Southwest Arizona where you can go to one of the old forts um, and you can see Buffalo Soldiers in the outfits they talk about you know their equipment they talk about what life was like on the on the range or whatever the case might be and so they tell the story we've been able to capture that 360 wise we've been able to capture that volumetrically we've also been able to work with the Arizona State Historical Society uh, in order to create a game for middle school students that will teach civics education, but through the eyes of a Buffalo Soldier, and so all of that is going to be made available with regards to the uh, the Fort Huachuca grant in the community center, but also will be made available at libraries and community centers around Tucson. So it'll be really interesting to uh, make use of all of those archives, incorporate them into a multimodal uh, digital story of the Buffalo Soldier experience because there's so many different ways that you can tell it, whether it's immersively, using augmented reality, using some sort of digital storytelling tool that is web-based or using some other sort of method, even an oral uh, sort of path that that people can take when they're walking and then they're they're being told the story in their ears as they're walking. So there are a lot of techniques that we're gonna be employing as we begin to tell the story in so many different ways.
1: Hmm, so just a, a question, I mean, it's for me, but maybe some, there's some people out there who do, doesn't know also, uh, what is Buffalo Soldier and why are they called Buffalo? <laughs>
2: Ah, yeah. So, the Buffalo Soldiers were nicknamed that by Native Americans, um, and there are a couple different stories. So, uh, one is that Native Americans uh, nicknamed African American soldiers just because of their fierceness in battle, uh, uh, because, you know, Buffalo don't, you know, back down to anybody or anyone. And uh, these Buffalo Soldiers were very, very fierce, and the Native Americans basically um, respected them in battle, even though they were foes. Um, another is, another story is, is because, of, you know, the, our hair and everything, and it reminded uh, Native Americans of the the the, the fur on the back of buffalo. So you know, it 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 depends on who you talk to to see to find out where that name came from.
1: Oh, well, that's that's awesome. Um, I hope I get I get the chance to see the result of of your work. It seems it's gonna be super interesting.
2: It's gonna be very cool. I can't wait till it's finished too.
0: Is that project two years as well?
2: Um, that project is, um, uh, so the one with Fort Huachuca ends in August. So that's why we've been going to the fort almost every weekend, trying to, get, trying to get drone uh, scans. Uh, and, but, but the, uh, uh, the, the cultural component of that is going to have a follow on. And so the, uh, the, the, uh, the 90 or so thousand they gave us just to do the scan was the first aspect of it. The cultural part, we're going to then do, uh, an add on, which, uh, I haven't priced out yet, but hopefully it'll be enough to fund some students for a couple of years.
0: I love it. How are you able to negotiate the the time and the resources to allocate student labor, students schedule, students graduation to create like ongoing highly funded projects? Like, how does that work for you?
2: Yeah, so um, uh, that's a that's a huge question. It has a lot of answers. So here at the university, there is an ongoing push to uh, support undergraduate student research. And so that's being done in a variety of ways, whether it be internal funding uh, in order for students to have uh, research opportunities with, say, a single professor. Or in our case, uh, being able to fund a center like this that gives students real world uh, hands on opportunities to incorporate research into real world projects. So it actualizes their research in ways that is is more difficult to do in a a classroom because you don't have those real-world connections, so to speak. So we've been able to get some really good funding here from the university internally uh, using that particular path. Also, we found that National Science Foundation, National Endowment for the Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Arts also funds undergraduate research. They want to make undergraduate research opportunities available. And so those organizations, if you've got a good idea and you can incorporate a meaningful uh, undergraduate research strategy uh, that will include mentorship and hands-on activities and all those kinds of things, uh, that has a really good chance of getting funded as well. So we've been very fortunate uh, to work with Tuskegee University with the National Endowment for the Arts Grant. That's a really cool one, let me tell you. That one is one where we're gonna be um, augmenting the, the parts of the civil rights trail from Selma all the way to Atlanta and so we'll be and then we'll be telling the stories of those individuals whose stories aren't told on the very well done civil rights trail website so if you go to that website it's, it's very well done they got drone scans they got it's very you know the images are you know beautiful um, but they don't tell the the, the story of the, the common everyday person that was a part of many of these things that happened at these historic locations so what we did is that back Back in January, I took a team of students to Tuskegee and we scanned the cemetery digitally. We took some holograms of some of the folks that, that wrote the book on the cemetery and the people who were buried there and some of the curators. And so we're inserting them holographically into that digital scan, getting our techniques right so that then when we start in Selma, we'll be able to replicate that in various locations and tell those untold stories in a very, very interesting and engaging way. So that when, when I think about all of that. All of those very, um, uh, you know, cool ways to uh, engage students, to introduce them to new technologies with real-world experiences help fund this uh, place. And so um, by pricing it out in that I look at, um, you know, a, a competitive wage. Uh, students get paid, you know, between 15 and $17 an hour, sometimes more if they're graduate students. Um, so I price that out. Um, students can only work um, 5, 10, you know, 20 hours a week depending on their Uh, their status depending on their their workload in school and this is a paid um, job on campus so students can work as much as their schedule allows me keeping in mind and Always reminding them that they're students first, right? And so I don't want them to put in a whole bunch of hours and then have their grades suffer because I couldn't employ them. Uh, so you uh, know, I kind of put it that way. So uh, students are really responsible about managing their time here, um, and based on their skill set, I then um, I assign them to one or more projects uh, based on what that project needs. So if a project is um, a, a digital scanning project that also needs a web base, a website in order to house the digital scans. Um, I can employ uh, you know the web designer then I can have maybe two or three students doing the scanning then they drop off then I employ two more web designers in order to build the back-end database in order to build the front-end uh, access and and the user interface and because they've all they got all the assets they need the digital scanners move on to other projects and so students are always shuffling around Taisha, you mentioned, um, continuity. Um, and that's a really challenging task here because students have to graduate, doggone it. I hate it when they, when we got to get rid of them, when they have to leave us, uh, because they, they get so, they're so smart and they're so good and they get Mm -hmm. so good at these tools. And, um, and, and, and we become a, you know, a family here and everything. And so they get really close. We all get really close. And so because we travel together, we've taken students to Florida to, you know, we're taking some to New Orleans to scan the Gallier house in another couple of months and so, so we, we become very close and so um, because of that I have a lot of students here um, and always the students are, are teaching one another the various skills that we have available here so we've made available uh, five different research groups that the students identified as as that which is um, you know most interesting and most important to them so we've got an AI research group um, a volumetric and holographic research group uh, digital storytelling and digital scanning research group and a um, uh, 360 videography uh, group, and then um, there might be one more, I can't remember. But anyway, the students that are interested in those particular technologies gravitate towards those groups. They organize meetings and training sessions and they teach one another those various skills so that whenever I have a project that needs X, Y, and Z, um, I can just put out a call, and, and, and based on the student's time, they can say, oh, I want to work on that project, or I want to work on that project, instead of me always having to say, I need you, you, and you, and you to work on this project. So it becomes more of a, uh, um, uh, a democratized uh, you know environment, because everybody sees that by working on these projects, we can really get more funding and more projects in, we can hire more students, we can get more equipment, we can upgrade everything, and so it really works that way, and I've, I've found that we We started one way when the center first began uh, with smaller grants of time to faculty members that that we awarded those grants of time and then we and you know awarded 50 development hours to create your project that was okay for a while but we've expanded way beyond that um, and faculty come to us now with funds or we work with faculty to write grant proposals that will fund their project so that's how we've evolved to uh, uh, to support the students that are that are working here
0: I love that. So I I have two follow up questions. I was thinking one that in some of the examples that you gave, some of the students are like higher up in terms of their knowledge of technologies. How would this work for a student with your background? Who's like an English literature major? How would they get involved with some of this high tech technologies that you are working with?
2: Yeah, we've had students exactly like that that have come in. They've all they've only expressed an interest in learning the tools and an interest in our mission. Remember, our mission comes first with regards to working with underserved communities. So when uh, when and students uh, pass around opportunities by word of mouth, typically I don't think I've had to advertise in a long time uh, by word of mouth. So they bring their colleagues in, knowing the mission uh, with various skill sets. So I've had students that come in with very little programming or developmental skills, and they learn. All on the job so I, I put them on maybe um, lesser demanding projects at first and then they gravitate towards that which they want to learn more about and then they up their their uh, their, their, uh, their knowledge from one another as well as being hands-on on various projects so the best way to learn is by doing it and so I give students that opportunity to, to learn by doing things here as well as from one another.
0: Okay. I said I had two follow-ups. So this is the next one. (laughs) I was thinking about the research groups that you said that they work on, you know, based on their interest, whether it's volumetric capture, 360 video. And are they paid for this time where they're kind of in this think tank with the other students? Or is this kind of like just kind of their free time and when they're organizing these meetings? How is that the compensation for that part of the labor working?
2: Right, so remember that that uh, that percentage of time that those grants pay for, or that mm-hmm. that funding pays for, that's those research groups, and so that's the research that we incorporate exactly. into all of our projects. Um, and we're working actively to figure out different ways to incorporate the AI that's just changed the world over the last two months mm-hmm. into our various projects. And so we're working with um uh, a visual AI application that is helping with the masking for the volumetric video in ways that that uh, uh that After Effects could never do. Right. And so uh, those are the ways that that group is contributing to a project that deals with with that particular technology. So it works out in various uh, ways where, where all of this is connected and it all synergizes or is reflexive on, on improving everything that happens here.
0: I love it. Thank you. I just, I got my, my wheels turning. (laughs) They got some ideas going. Thank you so much
2: yeah and, and one of the things that you know to consider is that when you're putting together a center like this it has to be funded um it has to, you know you can start off with you know maybe some funding from the university but uh, an old uh, mentor of mine told me that the only way to have any kind of independence is if you start creating your your uh, your opportunities by by applying for grants and receiving those uh, by applying yeah. for external funding by getting a benefactor you got to have control of your own funds right uh, as instead of relying on you know funds from say the college because leadership changes and that can dry up Um, and then also making sure that students uh, and your student developers are compensated fairly so that question you asked earlier about students time and being paid for that that is so very important and I always tell my students that you are going to get paid in one way or another so if students are starting off and they're starting off at minimum and then you know they move up whether it's their time or their expertise that improves or whether I'm able to compensate students by taking them on the very Various trips that we go on. We've been to a number of locations so far and I'm taking you know students uh, you know in teams of maybe four or six or eight um, and we're going and we're doing some really really cool projects but the students get that kind of uh, travel experience that's a part of working here as well that's also rolled into the compensation that they get that's uh, uh, being a part of this, uh, this center.
3: This is so helpful. Thanks, Brian. Especially, I think what we've been learning so much in the conversation so far is is the intersection between thinking about the technologies and how they engage with multiple communities that are interlocking and how to build a kind of a positive um, system of of reinforcing networks. So that is truly inspiring. So I wanted to thank you for that. Uh, I want to now take us because I mean honestly I it has been uh, really it's very rare for me to hear anybody speak with um, about t- new technologies with such a sense of joy as you do <laughs> and and that's also inspiring and so I wanted to um, take us um, in a to a little tour of of one of the technologies that we consider important for our um, institute, um, you know, for empathic immersive um, narrative, and that's uh, virtual reality, because this is something that you've been working on since the 1990s with your virtual Harlem project. And so I'm very interested to hear from you Brian, how, um, how your view of uh, virtual reality has evolved from the 90s to the present? And a couple of other uh, specific questions to our project, namely, do you feel that it can deliver more empathic experiences compared to l- the less uh, immersive um, technologies? And, and also, are, do you have any cautions for us about using uh, virtual reality in an empathic context?
2: Oh, uh, yes. Well, uh, yes, I have um, a, a lot of views on that that have changed and evolved over the years. Um, when I first started working with VR, you know, and still, 100% in. And I thought that was going to be the most um, um, uh, um, experiential way that we could affect student learning, uh, teaching and learning, uh, take them back in time, have them experience the past in, in various ways. Um, and I'm, I still think that that has a place. Um, however, I think that uh, we were just too far ahead back then because uh, 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 displays weren't caught up and, and frame rates weren't there and, and you know, we, we, we and graphics weren't even there the idea was there but the, the technology just wasn't there yet the technology's caught up and for immersive experiences i mean the headsets that are out now are amazing the new varjo headset that is that delivers you know 8k per or 4k per eye or whatever some insane resolution and has you know uh, almost optical quality uh you know uh, uh, pass through uh cameras that you know you can see the real world just as if you were looking out the window um you know it's heavy but i mean the, the the technology is there to deliver some really, really cool experiences. The graphics are there to do that. You've seen the MetaHuman project. They look just like we do today with regards to the skin tech and the hair and the textures and, and and the way that you can animate the face. I mean, it, it's getting really difficult to tell the difference. And then, of course, you know, what happened two months ago with OpenAI, that just totally changed everything. And I don't know if you all have played with uh, any of these uh, these technologies that, um, uh, that allow you to do speech to image or speech. To video or uh, text to video or text to image or now text to three D object. So so when I think about you know the the ways that that these technologies have have changed my thinking, um, I think that you know when when Meta started you know to sort of you know promote this sort of kind of immersive experience that that people are going to live in VR um, uh, and you know of course the the failure of you know some of the first avatars that were you know presented by by Zuckerberg and, and others and uh, but even though that improved um i think that um in in order to really affect humanity we have to have something that blends the real world the one that most people experience uh, in in some way that is enhanced with with uh with with objects and 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 digital experiences um and so where initially because augmented reality wasn't a thing back in the late 90s uh, where initially VR was my main focus and was for quite some time I I still like VR, but I think AR is going to have a a, a different kind of impact on a majority of people because AR is more accessible, um, you know, from your phone or even from lesser expensive um, AR headsets or glasses that are becoming more ergonomic now. Um, I think that's really going to have a larger impact than a fully immersive experience. Plus, some people really just aren't still comfortable being immersed in a crowd where you don't know what people are looking at or how you look, you know, you look crazy, um, you know, or or whatever the case might be. So, I think that, you know, even though there's a place for fully immersive experiences for some demographics, maybe some classrooms, um, uh, maybe, you know, museum experiences or whatever the case might be, I think for a majority of real world people, it's gonna be AR experiences uh, because um, part of what we do, one of the projects. That we work on here at the center is uh, uh, a center, uh, a group that was funded called the uh, University of Arizona uh, uh, Extended Reality uh, Anti Racism Studio. And so, what that is making use of are um, holographic and volumetric um, um, AR experiences um, that would then uh, allow you to experience macro and microaggressions uh, because we wanted to move the immersive kinds of experiences out of a fully immersive set into a real world setting, um, which you could kind of do in an immersive setting. But to put a police officer on the corner of Second and Vine is different than doing that Digitally created where everything is sort of, you know, different. But when you can, you know, scan a code or go into a geolocation and hold up your phone or your iPad or wear glasses and see an officer approaching you or whatever that experience may be, it doesn't have to be something that traumatic, but whatever that is in a real world setting, that's different. And that I think is going to have a, a, a maybe a differently empathic, empathic, um, experiential uh, effect on uh, constituencies than maybe a fully immersive experience. So, perhaps, uh, combining an immersive experience, you know, for some things, um, maybe an XR or an AR experience for other things might be a different, uh, an interesting way to go. Um, that will allow. a a wider audience to be able to experience whatever it is that you're doing because Folks with a, a cell phone can scan a QR code and they can experience whatever you're doing as opposed to having to have access to a, a VR headset, which may only be in a limited location, a limited number of locations. So that's what that's what gets me excited. And that's how my, my thinking has evolved. You can still make use of some of the same digital assets. Um, you know, any digital object that's scanned, you can make use of it in, in a VR environment, but also properly formatted in an AR environment. Holograms, volumetric video, both environments. You know, so I think that some of the things that you're do, that, that, that can be done aren't gonna have to be, be done twice. Um, the same asset can be used in multiple formats. So it's not, now we have choices. We don't have to do either VR or AR. You can do them both with the same developmental tool because Unity does both VR and AR, right? Um, and so you can do both things without having to necessarily have to make a choice. And that's where we are now technologically, which gets me excited because now we're moving towards device agnosticity. Uh, we're moving towards, you know, being able to develop once and output to multiple environments, that kind of thing, which is really exciting.
3: That's so great. And and that completely feeds into one um, uh Perspective that we've been pushing forward amongst ourselves, which is to, to pursue the idea of multimodal storytelling, because we know mm-hmm. that in many of the communities that we're going to, people will not, Even although we would hope to provide them with some technologies, in some cases, it's just not going to work. So having those multiple technologies um, to send to tell the same story different ways uh, seems very promising. And I couldn't help thinking, too, that especially when you had mentioned the idea of Allowing people to experience something like a microaggression in a way that some kind of biometric signal might be really interesting. So it's not just that I, f- you know, that made me feel a particular kind of way, but my heart rate did something or, you know, my skin activation did something. And you can see that it's not just this kind of evanescent thing, but there's actually physical responses to this. Um, right? And so we can, that, we can measure yeah. that
2: and we can measure things too, like where people are focusing their gaze. Are they looking away? <laughs> are they trying, you know, are, are their eyes darting? Are they trying to find an escape route or, or whatever the case might be? So we can measure, you know, those biometrics in ways that not only talk about what you're talking about, but also focus where we might want to um, uh, focus, maybe more support. Is there help coming from that way? And we're looking in that direction. So we can, we can do some really cool things with, with what you're talking about there.
3: Mm, So um, I'm excited. We can't wait to do this institute. So I I do have another follow-up question. I... This is such a joy, by the way. I, I really <laughs> love uh, hearing from you, Brian, because I mean there just—it's clear that there are so many different projects, and they all are are kind of manifesting in different uh, but related ways around technology. So mm-hmm. I wanted to um, mention that you recently published an, a, a new um, book entitled Afrofuturism: Experiencing mm-hmm. Culture Through Technology, and. Because of the conversation that we've had, I would love to know more about the particular way that that title manifests.
2: Right. So uh, the title came, I wanted to call it something different, but the editors had an idea because they wanted to highlight this notion of Afrofuturism and digital humanities, right? So those were the things. And so uh, having the subtitle there, uh, you know, being able to, uh, you know, show people uh, and, and they'll learn differently is, was really part of the subtext of that whole book. Um, so the, uh, the examples that are within the book really highlight uh, things that are happening with digital humanities and Afrofuturism and the, and the, the, the synergies that happen there in public settings in educational settings as well as in uh, uh, creative settings so there are some uh, case studies of of museums and incorporating experiential uh, technologies uh, as as part of a um, uh, you know an exhibit on a a beauty salon that kind of thing Uh, as well as uh, conversations that uh, that were uh, held with um, uh, uh, digital artists and looking at the impact of say NFTs on the on the digital uh, art more art world and and its effect on underserved communities, which is part of what Afrofuturism deals with. So looking at these uh, these ideas that sometimes that digital humanities conversations tend to leave out, although that's starting to change with Matthew Gold's uh, contributions to difficult conversations in digital humanities, which is amazing. T- Taisha, I think you're publishing one of those, aren't you? Yes. yes. So um, uh, it's digital one of those
0: humanities but- quarterly.
2: Quarterly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, so when when you think about, you know, these these conversations that typically, um, you know, even attending some of the digital humanities conferences, there's not as much a diverse representation as as I think there could be or should be unless you go to a specifically oriented uh, uh, black or underrepresented digital humanities conference. Then it's like a life changing experience to see 300 people of color working with technology that you never knew were even existing in the United States. Right. And so so, so so, here's where I think that, you know, the book really highlights uh, these examples of the synergies of how digital humanities speaks to Afrofuturism and how Afrofuturism can inform the direction of digital humanities by incorporating a, a, a more empathetic uh, as well as a more uh, culturally sensitive and aware uh, understanding of the impact of technology on, uh, on, on, the, on the human condition. Yeah,
3: I was going to just say, uh, is, there, is there any... Um, are, a uh, last uh, uh, bits of information you'd like to share with us, Brian? I mean, this has been a very rich conversation, but I, I also feel like it could also easily go on for another hour, and, and, and we would and would be just as scintillating. But is, is there, Do you feel there's anything important um, that, that uh, you know our, our audience should hear about that we haven't covered what? yet?
2: Well, I think what you all are doing is, is amazing. I think by in, incorporating this this sort of empathetic in, uh, em, empathic in, institute is really important with regards to involving the community in whatever levels of technology you wish to uh, in, in, uh, introduce them to. Uh, that will focus, uh, you know, on a on a particular topic. Um, and I think you know social justice is very important to communities now, um, as well as opportunities for uh, for workforce development and financial improvement, uh, financial literacy um so when when partnering with communities uh the one thing that i've just always had um i guess uh, impressed upon me is that those communities have to have the uh the uh, the loudest voice in the room in many respects because whatever we're doing with them has to be guided by their needs and their uh, their wishes um, and we're we're just in support of that um, and so even though we like to say you know everybody has a seat at the table in my opinion if we're working with community groups those communities have to guide the conversation and invite us to the table um, and then once we're invited then we we have to basically listen and understand whatever it is that they want. And so my advice, and I know you've already done community focus groups and things like that, is to really listen to what those communities want and then uh, really ask them how, based on these resources we have, how can we um, uh, forward your mission in the best way and most innovative way possible. Now, sometimes they don't know what's possible because they haven't seen everything. And I think what y'all are doing with regards to introducing a number of possibilities uh, that will demonstrate X, Y, Z and. And then back to A, that might be a good way to introduce what some of the possibilities are as those decisions are being discussed by the communities. So maybe some uh, aspect of uh, awareness building. on site, because we can't expect them to come to us, uh, right? And that's another thing that that you know is really quite interesting that I learned uh, working here is that um, you know even though we're working with communities, you know we it's it's difficult to get on University of Arizona's campus, parking, uh, tra- you know you know the, just the crowds, dealing with students, you know finding the building, that kind of thing. Even if we're paying for their parking and buying lunch and and you know getting an escort, it's it's just not convenient, right? And so we have to meet folks where they are. Uh, we we can go to a community center. We can you know spend whatever amount of money to stay overnight someplace and 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 bring everything with us. Um, but I think that's that's more important than you know sponsoring uh, you know a group of people to come here on our campus. Um, even though this is a great location, they they can have a cool experience. Um, that's that's just a one-time experience, and that's not going to be where they are or where they can go every day or whatever the case might be. And so. I've just learned that um that going where folks are going where where the need is is so very meaningful to those communities that we're working with it shows our level of commitment because we're not expecting them to come to us even though we're paying for it it shows our level of commitment it it also shows a level of humility because we're not you know showing our um our positionality by inviting people to my house, you know, you know how that can, you know how that is, right? You do only invite people to your mansion, yeah, you know. So, so we have, we right. So we have to we have to be very sensitive to those things, I think, and that's really going to go a long way. Beautiful, absolutely right. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for this. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you for your your service on our advisory board and your contribution to those meetings as well. And we're looking forward to, you know, seeing you again with the entire advisory
3: board. Thank
0: you so Uh, much.
2: Thank you. I look forward to working with y'all in the future. Good luck with this project. It is so very cool. I know it's going to be successful. Thank you. Thank
0: Thank you. In this episode, we discussed augmented and virtual reality, community engagement, and some best practices in digital humanities projects. Dr. Brian Carter, helped us to compare augmented and virtual reality while reflecting on the specifics of immersive narrative experiences. He also shared insights on ways to ethically engage communities and prioritize their needs. In doing so, we also learned about the exciting work Dr. Carter is leading with the University of Arizona's Center for Digital Humanities especially involving broadband access, digital classrooms, volumetric capture, drones, and 360 video.
3: Yeah, sure, I'm gonna just jump into it. Yeah, so first of all, I mean, Brian is an extremely impressive individual, and we're very fortunate to have his uh, guidance in our process. And he asks a number of interesting questions that uh, we can now think about how we wanted to deal with them um, in in building our own empathic immersive narrative institute. And uh, I think one one of the really interesting questions that came up was about uh, about IP, and uh, you know. Who owns it? How do we think about it? And uh, this is this is something I've been thinking about uh, for a while, just as a uh, as someone coming from the world of uh, uh, classical European music, which is that now we have these very stringent notions of IP, internet intellectual property, and um, the benefits for them. <laughs> for the monetization of the IP seems to go uh, very fractionally to the people who actually originate the uh, creative work. And at the same time, this whole structure of intellectual property um, law seems to be getting in the way of, of certain kinds of uh, intertextuality uh, where one, one person samples somebody else and brings in somebody else's ideas and uh, and again, you know, as somebody who's coming from classical music, it's it's very clear to me that um, the entire history of Western art music would not have developed nearly in the same way if we had the intellectual property structures that we have now. So um, I think, if I recall, Brian rec- recommended that we be cautious about how how we deal with this. That um, it goes without saying that if there's any monetization of uh, intellectual intellectual property coming out of stories, that all of it has to go to the creators. But also, um, he cautioned us to maybe start by making sure that people that we're engaging with actually know what IP is, because exactly. they might not. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's. I mean, if you go back through the history of how many musicians. Were exploited um essentially you know they were they would come in and make a record for twenty dollars if they even got paid and then somebody else owned all of the ip Mm -hmm. then that that aspect of uh of education if if it can be done in a uh, non-patronizing way um could be part of the value of of the engagement of of the institute
0: you know, and once, since you said it like that, maybe it'll be an education for us as well. Like, maybe there's someone at Virginia Tech that we can speak to to see if they could come in and do like a 30 minute, 45 minute workshop on IP um, that can inform us, like how Virginia Tech operates in that domain, in that area. And, the rights in general for creators. Um, Yeah. So I think that's a good idea.
3: Absolutely. And I know that Virginia Tech is getting increasingly interested in open access Mm -hmm. because that's, it's, you know, I, I find myself um, even though, you know, as an artist, money is usually the last thing I think about. I find myself increasingly drawn into situations where I see these incredibly talented people Winding up with no money, and then I'm just like wondering, well, where did all that money go to? How how did how did that work? So maybe maybe that's a story to be explored at some point. But um, dragging us back to um, what we spoke about with uh, with Brian Carter, uh, I think the key the key point underlying that that slight tangent on IP is prioritizing benefiting the community that mm-hmm. we're working with. And we've talked, we've discussed this a lot. Which is, there's, there's the difference between something that is a single engagement and something that could lead to an ongoing relationship. And you know, in a strange way, uh, I mean, I almost think about this as, uh, you know, there, there's a game um, called prisoner's dilemma where, you know, if if you um if you cooperate with the other person then both of you benefit but not as much as if if you if you don't cooperate and the other person does and so the sort of thing uh, with prisoner's dilemma is is if you only have one interaction of prisoner's dilemma your your best bet is to just not cooperate to to just basically be the bad guy but it turns out um, they tested this over a number of different algorithms. That the the winning strategy for multiple uh, iterations of prisoner's dilemma is to cooperate first and then do exactly what the other person did the last time. And so, if both people collaborate, then then you wind up with a benefit. So that's that's where I think the the distinction between something that's one off and something that establishes an ongoing relationship. It gives us the opportunity to iterate a mutually beneficial exchange.
0: I'm going to have to ask about the prisoner's dilemma thing again, um, because I think I only understood part of it. E And this could be this part could be. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just interested in the, the parallel that you were making. I'm almost there, but not quite.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's almost, in a way, a kind of a real thing if you have two people who are being questioned, and if one person informs on the other person, that person gets a deal, and the other person gets lots of prison time, and vice versa. But cooperation would mean essentially non-cooperation with the authorities. Nobody exactly. said that as okay. anything. I get it but, better now. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, but it but it winds up in in terms of amounts of points it's it, it's in a way it's, it's it's part of game theory and it's it's just exploring a situation where essentially um if the absolute best thing that could happen for you is if you um inform on the other person and they don't inform on you so in other words, co- you can get more points by being the bad guy than by cooperating. But the only problem is that that only works one time. Once, once the word gets around, you're not likely to get a lot of cooperation. So it's, it's just, I think, a, a way of kind of conceptualizing how, how to make uh, decisions where there are benefits and, um, and risks. At, at stake. And I guess there's another, you know, risk is another one of those things where I constantly see um, in our society risk being put on groups of people so that other groups no longer have that risk. Um, I mean, I guess it, like the, the most obvious example of that would be uh, moving people from pensions where, you know, you're sort of guaranteed after you. You know, retire that you'll be paid a certain amount no matter what. Um, to being pushed on to these investment plans where all of a sudden each individual has to make an investment. And if he doesn't, if the investment doesn't go well, well, that's your problem, it's not the company's problem. So, all of a sudden, all of that risk, which the company had to deal with, mm-hmm. now now it's been put on you so that. The, the moving of risk different places, I think, is part of, of how our economy works is, uh, in, in interesting ways. So I think what we're, what we're trying to do is kind of the opposite of that. And the, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to distribute benefits. And that's, an, that's another thing that, um, that uh, Brian had mentioned, which is he said that you don't want to have a situation where you're going for a grant and only a tiny fraction of that grant actually trickles down to the, to the people who are supposed to be the beneficiaries mm-hmm. you want to you want to structure things so that the maximum benefit goes to the people who are actually making the thing possible making it special the people the people who have stories to tell that that we're interested in
1: if I, if I remember correctly, I, I guess the strategy that you mentioned is the tit for tat. It's called tit for tat. Mm-hmm. So yep. yeah, if, <laughs> if they're bad with you, then you're bad with them. But then you're, you always assume first cooperation. So while the other person's cooperating, you also cooperate. But as soon as the other person does not cooperate, then you stop cooperating as well.
3: Absolutely. And it works. That's the best strategy long term. Which, which makes me wonder why isn't everybody just going around cooperating? <laughs> anyway, back to, anyway. um, back to multi multimodal, uh, storytelling that, that is something that, um, that Brian's very interested in. And, um, he'd, he'd mentioned a project, uh, that, that, uh, ar- around Buffalo, uh, soldier history. Um, and, uh, I think what was was interesting there, this is something that we've been talking about a fair amount, and it's good to know that we have this model. So, you know, he's using immersive uh, technologies. He's using um, AR. He's using um, uh, the web. um, But he's also using gaming and oral histories. And so what what we've talked about um, a fair amount is... On the one hand, our institute is going to give people access to technologies that they usually don't have, because Virginia Tech just really does have some very special technologies. But at the same time, what we want to do is make sure that our engagement with the stories is multimodal so that on the one hand, we give people an opportunity to do some things they've never, never been able to do before that maybe would inspire them and maybe lead to more work. But we also make sure that the work exists in other modalities that are yeah. more accessible.
1: Yeah, that's 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 an interesting point. I think uh, Carter was the only one who mentioned the the difference between like being an, an AR building an AR story versus building VR, right? And mm-hmm. uh, he mentions it that, that he actually thinks that AR stories are more immersive than than VR stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you remember, he said that. Because you can engage with like real things, right, real environments or objects, that brings um, more immersive into the narrative, so people get more engaged, uh, then it was entirely disconnected as a VR experience. We generally don't think of AR as being more immersive than VR if you just think technically, right? Exactly. Because you have, you have much more control over a VR experience than you have in an AR experience. But if you think about um, a nice, nicely done AR experience where you know the environment and everything you see in AR is like curated and has a a goal of you know listing certain types of emotions, then yeah, I agree. It can indeed be more immersive than than a, a random VR experience.
3: I'm really glad you mentioned that, Wallace, because that reminds me that maybe we need to be a little bit more critical. Of the term immersion and and what we mean, because um, I I think you know what you're talking about, as I understand it, is a level of engagement that um, on the one hand there there are very since I work in in immersive audio there there are very precise technical terms about what is happening with the audio. I mean, is it is it a mono stream? Is it is it stereo? Um, is it multi-channel but planar, um, mm-hmm. or is it paraphonic? So it's kind of all over you. And is it so? Is it giving you a sense of surround or envelopment or engulfment? These, I mean, these are all technical terms that that are discussed in the literature. But
1: mm-hmm.
3: what they don't uh, address is, well, how how much more intense is my experience with this? I mean, I might have an experience where I'm just reading a score of a Beethoven string quartet there's no sound at all except in my head but I might be in extremely engaged and I might be in a very heavily uh, digitally mediated environment where um, for whatever reason the the material is is not uh, really uh, grabbing my attention so. Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a a plus one aspect to this. Again, I I'm so glad that you brought this up, Wallace, because that's really the plus one is all of these immersive technologies, plus the story, plus the creation of the story into those technologies, and it's really on us, as uh, for, first of all, as as people who are going to be. Uh, structuring and and teaching in the in this institute to make sure that we're we're um, providing knowledge that's going to lead to uh, better engagement. But then also we need to be critical about it. We need just just as earlier we were, you know, we came into the word empathy with you know. Um, you know, rainbows and unicorns, and then, and then, uh, then, then we had a few uh, conversations with Ashley Shu, and we realized mm-hmm. that okay, maybe, maybe there are some storm clouds there too that we need to be worried about. Um, and so, yeah. I think maybe being critical about what immersion is, what immersive technologies are, what they do, what their uses are, um, is will be an um, uh, important part of the engagement and that also reminds me that you know as we make this institute we we also need to have some critical thinkers um who are who will engage outside of the people who are facilitating the the um of stories
1: and just to be clear uh I was using immersion like as a like a more colloquial term, right? Like mm-hmm. when we say, "Oh, I'm immersed in a book," right? right? Or "I'm immersed in the music," right? When we when you talk about that in like VR terms, like following the literature, right? There's several more specific terms that we can use. Um, we often say like perp, uh, illusion of presence, right? The illusion of being somewhere else, or plausibility illusion, like the illusion that the things that are happening are actually happening. Uh, There's also from other uh, literature from games like Flow, right? Like Mm -hmm. when you're there interacting in a task that kind of matches your level of ability. And we generally reserve immersion to exactly what you said, right? Okay, yeah, in this case, a 360 um, image would be more immersive than a 2D display. And a stereoscopic image would be more immersive than a 360 non-stereo image, right? So just to, to, to make that clear that those things should do exist, but we sometimes navigate using more like colloquial terms to kind of get all this idea, right, of being, uh, being engaged in the, in the story.
0: Thank you for that, Wallace. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, we thank you. Thank you, ACLS, for your support of our podcast and our project. Thank you to our advisory board members for your contributions. Damon Davis, Riam Alieldin, Al Evangelista, Ashley Shu, and Brian Carter, who was a guest on this episode. Special thanks to Amanda Hodes, our assistant to our advisory board. Thank you, VT Publishing and Joe Fort for producing this podcast. I'm Taisha Thompson, and on behalf of Wallace Lodges and Eric Lyon, we hope you enjoyed this new episode, and if you did, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share this episode with others who may be interested in this topic. See you next month for a new episode with Al Evangelista.